All right, guys, if you have your Bible, find uh, the book of Philippians, the New Testament book of Philippians, chapter 1. If you're here for the first time this morning, again, glad you're here. And just to let you know what it kind of looks like uh, here at Lakeview, on our Sunday mornings uh, in this gathering, we're usually, I know we're always, pretty much, studying, just studying through a book of the Bible. Um, and uh, if you're ever here in the summer, summer's a fun time to be in Auburn, but normally we're in like an Old Testament book. So um, this, we just wrapped up this summer studying through First and Second Samuel. But in the fall and the spring, the main school year, we're, we're usually in the New Testament somewhere. So last school year, we studied through the book of Romans. Um, and, uh, and like I said, this, we're opening to Philippians. This, this fall, our focus is going to be on the book of Philippians. And that, why do we do that? Why do we study straight through books of the Bible like this? Because we, why do we think hard about what it says? And, because we believe that what, what, what Scripture says is what God says to us, Right? And there's n- it, that's that being the case, that being true, there literally, there quite literally is nothing more important and valuable for us to do on this morning or any morning than to know clearly what has God told me, right? And so we'll work straight through Philippians, uh, and if you, if you keep coming week after week, you'll know that wherever we left off last week is where we're going to pick up the next week. We're going to be in Philippians in the fall, and then when you come back from Christmas break, start the spring, we're going to be in the book of James, uh, and then what do we do on Wednesday nights? Well, um, on Wednesday nights, we're still, uh, you know, rooted in the Word, but it's going to be a little more topical. Uh, at CBS, College Bible Study meets in this room. Most weeks, it's going to meet at 8 o'clock in this room on Wednesday nights. This Wednesday is a little different, right? So we're doing the pancake night kickoff this Wednesday. It's at 7.30 in this room. And so why 7.30? So if you're a freshman, if you're going to the the Oaks Retreat Ministry Fair in the arena. It's from 4 to 7. Uh, come right after that. It's over at 7. Pancakes at 7.30. That'll be fun. Um, but most every other week, we're meeting at 8 o'clock in this room. And it's a little more topical. So uh, it's funny enough, the, the topic for this fall is Scripture itself. Like, what do we believe about the Bible? Uh, what does the Bible tell us about itself? And uh, But then when you come back in the spring, it's going to be a little different. We're going to talk about very practical issues, like how do we think about them as Christians, like fear and anxiety uh, and worry and bitterness and anger and gossip and slander and sexual temptation, um, jealousy and self-image, distraction, procrastination. We'll we'll talk about that. And then somewhere in the spring, my wife, Laura, and I, she's right over there, we're going to do a relationship talk, and that's always fun and lively. Uh, So come for that. But anyway, I hope to see you this Wednesday at 730 for Pancakes. But today we're going to begin our study through Philippians. And what I want to do today, since this is week one, I just want to give you a little introduction uh, to the book and hopefully a little background and and context to the letter uh, and some of the important themes in it. I think we can get a lot of good from that uh, in in the same way that you kind of scout out the lay of the land before you start hiking through it. And, And that's kind of what we're going to do this morning. So before we dive into the specifics, we're going to start here in Philippians 1. And, and also, by the way, um, we're going to dip into Acts chapter 16 for just a minute a little later on. So if you want to put a bookmark there, you can do that, uh, Acts chapter 16. But if you're in Philippians, we're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to look at the first two verses for today. So look there with what we read um, there. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, that passage we just read, the passage we're going to refer to in Acts chapter 16, every other verse that we, we will make reference to this morning, we confess our faith that it is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And our prayer again this morning as we open it up is that you would give us eyes to see the truth in it. And would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you then give us hearts to embrace, like embrace it and, and, and see it as, as eternally important as it is? And would you give us wills then to obey and live out, carry out what it, whatever it is that these texts admonish us to do. That is not anything that I can produce. It's not anything that we can produce in ourselves. So, Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask your help. Help, give me the help that I need to teach this. Please give us all ears to hear what you're saying to us in the Word. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, if you're taking notes, uh, I do want to go ahead and give you a little preview of what we're going to say this morning, and then we'll say it. All right, so I'm just going to have three basic points today. So if you're taking notes, here's going to be the first one. The first one uh, I've already mentioned, I'll, it's going to be the context, all right, the context uh, of Philippians. So simple but important things like who, who is writing this? Who's he writing to? What do we know about them? What's going on in, in Philippi? That kind of thing, the context. And there's some important things we can learn from that. And then secondly... As we think about the opening verses, I want to think about what I'll call the comforts, the comforts, um, comforts that Paul reminds them of and gives thanks to them for. In a lot of ways, this, if you're familiar with Philippians or if you read it this week, you're, you'll see that it, in a lot of ways, it's a letter of deep friendship. And uh, it's in deep friendship in more ways than one. And I think it's some ways that we often overlook. But anyway, finally, there are some warnings in the letter that show us what I'll call the concerns that Paul has for these Philippians, that they need to be aware of, that we need to be aware of in our own lives still today. So that's where we're going. Hopefully it'll be clearer to you as we go along if it's not already. So let's dive in and take a closer look, thinking about the, the context first. So who wrote the letter to the Philippians? Hopefully that's an easy question for a lot of you, especially since the answer is the very first word of the book. Um, Paul. Paul wrote it. Uh, along with Timothy, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So let's just, let's just be thorough and make sure we're all on the same page. Who was Paul? Paul was formerly uh, a Jewish Pharisee who hated Christ, who hated Christians, and literally spent his life hunting down Christians, looking, traveling from city to city uh, to find Christians, to persecute them, to put them in prison to put them to death. You'll have in Acts chapter 7, like the, 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 the story of the stoning to death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and Paul was just standing there collecting the, the coats of the men who were throwing the stones, giving approval to what was happening. That was, that was Paul. And you know the story of Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 8, where he is on the road to Damascus. Why is he going to Damascus in the first place? To do what I just told you he was, he was busy doing to find Christians, to persecute them. And on that road to Damascus, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself in a blinding light to him. And he knew immediately 
that Jesus was Lord. And he repented of his sins and followed Christ so, so thoroughly that in these opening verses, if you'll look uh, in, in uh, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, he, he would refer to himself as a servant or even more literally a slave of Christ Jesus. But not slave in a, that's what I got to do, a slave joyfully, willingly, um, uh, and even becoming himself one of the very missionaries that he had previously spent his life trying to persecute, right? And now Timothy was one of those people who came to faith in Christ through the missionary enterprise of the Apostle Paul. Um, you learn, and, he, and Timothy became a believer, and Timothy joined Paul. You can read it in the first verse of Acts chapter 16. He joined Paul on one of those missionary journeys. Uh, later, Timothy, and it's going to be important here, I think, Later, Timothy would become the pastor of the church in Ephesus, okay? So when you read Ephesians, uh, Timothy's pastoring that church. And that's, in, that's an important detail I want to bring up here because uh, Timothy, from that position as pastor in Ephesus, gives us a little window into the context here because we are reminded that, that Philippians is one of, of a number of Paul's letters that are called prison epistles. That sounds like a terrible name, but what, I mean, what else do you call it? Because why, why are they called that? Because he was in prison when he wrote these letters. And the fact that Timothy is named here, I think it's good evidence that, um, that Paul was in prison in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. And Ephesus was about a hundred miles away. It's, it's debated whether he was in prison in Rome uh, or Ephesus, but I, don't, I think it's sort of immaterial. But Ephesus was about 100 miles away from, from Philippi. And Paul was writing this letter that we're about to study from a place of suffering as a Christian. But if you read it, uh, this letter, is, is, is a, it bears no marks, none at all, of bitterness, uh, of self-pity. Um, but instead, he's writing from, you think of prisons in that day. They weren't places of rehabilitation. They were places of punishment, right? And he, he, he writes this letter that is instead full of joy in the fellowship he had with Christ while there, right? And, and, and the work that the Lord was even doing through him from that place, right? He would even say at the end, if you, you don't have to turn there, but in, in chapter 4, you know, it's from that place that Paul could still say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty, of facing hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? That's, he's, he's in prison writing those words. And he was still, and when he wrote those, he wasn't just speaking things that the Lord had just miraculously real, revealed to him from heaven, yes, but also from from his own personal experience, he's writing those things. And in that same chapter in Philippians 4, he would, he would say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. And he says, and, do, and think about where Paul is writing this. And we're going to go to Acts chapter 16 in just a minute, and you're going to say, what? The things that happened to him. And he still says, and in, at the end of this very letter, he'll say, do not be anxious about anything, right? But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, 
And the peace of God, writing from a prison, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Another way to say that, it probably won't make sense to you in the moment. Right? Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's who's writing this letter. It's crazy good. But who's he writing this letter to? Well, verse 1 says, he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, let's camp out there for just a second. He's writing to saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus of Philippi. Now, saints, quote-unquote, in the New Testament is not a word that is reserved just for the really good Christians, the really good ones, the really holy, the ones who did things that just, man, they really counted. I think we have that sort of misunderstanding of how we use the word saint or how the word saint is often used. It's a misconception of it I think we get from Roman Catholics who, you know, you think Mother Teresa. Well, she lived her whole life doing great things, and even when she died, they still weren't sure yet at the moment she died if she was a saint. They had to kind of confer later and look back on her life and say, she did all these things. She was a saint. Look at what she did, right? That's not, <clears throat> that's not how the, the New Testament uses that word. In, in the New Testament, when you see the word saint, that is a, that is a word that is, that is true of every single Christian. Every Christian is a saint, right? Um, every person who has truly repented of their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ and follow Him Every person in Christ by repentance and faith is a saint. Notice it says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, right? And so that means that if you are in Christ by repentance and faith, you are a saint not because you're really good, right? Not because you've done good things, not because you're holy, but because He's holy. And when you're in Him by repentance and faith, He has made you holy by His holiness. And it's because of His holiness that you're now in him a holy one, a saint. But I want you to notice something else. He's not just writing to, to Christians generally. Christians generically. <coughs> like he's going to write this letter, and whoever the letter carrier is, hey, he says, hey, go to Philippi, find the first Christian you meet, give them this letter, let them read it. When they're done, Tell them to find the next Christian they meet and they'll read it and just keep passing it around Philippi until it's done. They don't care what you do with it after that. No, that's not what happened. Notice what it says. It says, to all the saints who are at Philippi, comma, with the overseers and deacons. Overseers and deacons. What's that? That is, that's, that's officers in a church, right? That's like saying pastors and deacons. Which means he's not writing to Christians generically in Philippi. He's writing to the church there. That's where this letter would have been sent. That's how they would have heard this letter be read to them. They would have heard it and read it in the gathering of this church in Philippi. And there are a couple of things that we can take away from that. One is this. This verse is just one of a lot of instances to show you that Paul and the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul um, has no, there's, there's no category in his mind. There's no such thing as a Christian apart from the church. 
disconnected from the church, right? Now, the other thing is this. He's writing to a local church. Now, when the, when the, when the New Testament talks about the church, it kind of talks in two different ways, two different kinds of ways of referring to the church. On the one hand, it'll, it'll talk about the church universally, like all Christians everywhere. Think about like Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? That's one way. Big C church, Christians everywhere. That's called the universal church. That's not what's in view here, is it? How do you know? Because he says it's at Philippi. It's, it's right there in that, in that place. Like this is the church, not everywhere, but the one at Philippi. It's called a local church, right? <clears throat> now, not only does the New Testament not tell us, or does it tell us that there's no such thing as a Christian apart from or disconnected uh, to the church universally, the moment you believe you're part of the church universally, it doesn't recognize a Christian apart from and disconnected from a local church, right? That is something, if you're here and you're a, you're a freshman and you went to the Oaks Retreat, you heard about, you should have heard about constantly. Um, you heard about the, the unity among a lot of our local churches in Auburn and Opelika. We've got a lot of like-minded churches, and we're not in competition with each other, right? We partner together in ministry, um, and we work hand-in-hand for the gospel going forward in Auburn, right? But from an individual like your perspective, you can't be planted in all of them. You can't, you can't have, you only, you only have two feet, Right? And, and one foot won't reach from here to another church. You've got to have both feet in a local church. You've got to just plant there. And the Christian life is not bouncing around from church to church, but finding a gospel-believing and teaching church and just commit to it and plant deep roots in that church. The New Testament vision of, of a Christian and the local church is, 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 is a believer being committed to other people, being committed to other people. And to a bunch of people who aren't just like you, who can challenge you in that way, and you learn how to love other people with the love of Christ. That's what's going on here. And what about Philippi? This is the church at Philippi. Well, he's writing to the church of Philippi. Really quickly, this might be the, the, the most mundane, nerdy thing I'll say. Uh, Philippi was a city founded by Philip of Macedon. You're like... Who and why? So what? Um, well, that's just to say, Alexander the Great's daddy, right, started this city. His name was Philip. He's like, what am I going to name it? I'm going to name it Philip. Philip, I'm going to name it after myself. Well, later in its history, Philippi was a very Roman city, like capital R, Roman, uh, because it was a place where a lot of Roman military veterans were sent to live. Right, and so it was dedicated to Rome and Roman ways, Roman customs, Roman religion, which meant Roman religion predominantly meant worshiping whoever was emperor as God. They were divine, right? Sure, they had other. They were polytheistic. They had other, other, other gods, little g, but none higher than whoever was the Roman emperor, Caesar, 
Well, when you, when you look at Acts chapter 16, you see, and, and how this church was started, you start to see that flavor come out. So hold your place here, flip over to Acts chapter 16, where you'll find Paul and his missionary companions arriving in Philippi around verse 12. Okay, Acts chapter 16, and in verse 12, they arrive in Philippi. We'll just kind of, uh, we won't just dive deep into this chapter. We'll kind of just skim through it. <clears throat> but if you're looking at Acts chapter 16, they, are, they, 16, they arrive in, in Philippi in verse 12. And then tw- verses 12 to 15, it's, it's talking about how when they first got there, they went down to a riverside there where there were some people there. And among those people at that riverside that day was a woman named Lydia. And verse 14 will tell us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She believed the gospel. That's a big deal because, uh, because Lydia was a wealthy woman. She was a seller of purple cloth. She had money. And it's more than likely that the church began to meet there in her home. She would have had a home big enough to accommodate a church there. right? So a church began meeting in Lydia's house. And so the church was getting its beginnings right away. But if you're looking at Acts chapter 16, as time went on, uh, beginning in verse 16, we learn about a story where as they were moving on, they were being harassed by a girl who was possessed by a demon, and she was a fortune teller for two other guys in the city. And uh, Paul cast out that demon, and she was no longer a a fortune teller. And so he kind of ruined those two guys' business, and uh, they caused trouble for Paul. Uh, and notice what they say. when they, they actually drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace, which is where everybody in town would have been, and to the rulers. And notice the accusation that they make against Paul and Silas in verses 20 and 21. It says, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. How? It says, They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Right? They're messing with our Roman ways. What, what kind of unlawful custom would Paul have likely advocated that they couldn't abide by? Probably that they was probably saying, well, there, there's only one king, and it's not Caesar. It's Jesus, right? But Paul and Silas, it says that they were beaten with rods. That's not fun. And they were thrown in jail. You might know the story, you might know the story how in the, in the middle of the night, and they're in jail, in Philippi, that the Lord sent an earthquake and the doors of the jail flew open, but they didn't escape. They could have. The jailer thought they escaped. He was about to fall on his own sword and commit suicide. They're like, no, don't do that. And they preached the gospel to them. The jailer believed. His whole family believed. And they now joined the church in Lydia's house. And it's funny, when the authorities found out, uh-oh, Paul, the guy, remember that guy we just beat with rods without a trial? He's a Roman citizen. We goofed. And it scared them to death. And uh, they didn't know what was going to happen to them. And verses 38 and 39 says, they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and they apologized to him. How do you, that's awkward. I didn't mean to beat you with rods. I mean, well, it says they took them out and asked them to leave the city. They weren't really sorry. They were just trying to save their own skin because they were still like, we're sorry, we still need you to leave, right? 
Like, we'll walk you out, right? Make sure you go. So at, when at the end of verse 39 it says, uh, they visited Lydia, where, where that young church was now meeting. It says, when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They needed that city, I mean, that encouragement. They, because, man, that, even though they were like, we're sorry we beat, we beat you with rods, they were still like, don't come back. They weren't guaranteeing it wouldn't happen again. And these Christians, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, his family, others, they needed encouragement to continue living as Christians in that city where Christians were persecuted and not welcome. Imagine living in a place like that. And there continued a very close relationship between Paul and that, and that church in Philippi. You can go back to Philippians 1. Why is Paul writing this letter to them? Well, really, it's to thank them for the help that they had given him 100 miles away in jail in Ephesus, um, but also to warn them for, for about some concerns that he had for them. So for the rest of our time this morning, I'm going to try my best to give you some time around the tables. If y'all are old school, you're like, good luck. Um, some time around your tables to discuss at the end. But uh, I want to try to give you the best I can some uh, describe both the comforts that Paul reminds the Philippian church that they have, that they're going to need to remember that they have, as well as concerns that he fears that they face. All right, so let's think about the comfort. So Paul is writing as a beleaguered Christian in prison to beleaguered Christians in hostile Philippi, as we saw at the end of Acts 16. Paul knew that they needed constant encouragement, so his first task in this letter that he wrote them is to remind them of the comforts in the Lord that they have. Okay, And put simply, he's going to say in this letter that they have... God has given them comforts in two ways. The first is the comfort that they have in Christ. All right? What, what Paul says in verse 2 is not just a formality. If you're looking at verse 2 where he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. That's not, that's not just what you say before you start the real part of the letter. Right? Paul is, Paul is saying, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. He is, he is saying that is the settled state for them as a believer. Like they have grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many good things to take away from that sentence. One, it shows you, it shows you the deity of, of Jesus Christ. He's, he's God in human flesh because the grace and peace don't just come from the Father. They also come from the Son. They're given the same thing, right? Um, it also reminds you, because that's true, that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. There's no God behind Jesus that's unlike him, right? Um, when you see Jesus, you're seeing the Father. So when you see grace and peace flowing from Jesus in the Gospels and in the New Testament, that's also flowing to you from the Father. I want to say something, too, here about grace. Grace. Um, sometimes we use language about grace that's not really always helpful in grasping what it is. Um, we, say, we say things like God poured out his grace, like it's a liquid, like it's a substance, that he could have poured it out, he could suck it back up, pour it out again. Uh, it's, it, it makes it sound like it's a thing, 
that you could have more of or less of? Grace. Well, what is grace? Grace is a disposition. Grace is a posture towards somebody. It's a, it's a posture of God toward believers. It's, it, it's a settled posture of favor. It's like he has turned his face toward you in favor, in grace. That's grace. It's the way he is situated toward you. And it's a, it's a posture that he takes toward you. That's grace. And it's a settled posture of favor. It's not something that he pours out or later takes away. Instead, and that's not just here. It's all through the Bible. That's Old Testament and New Testament. One of my favorite examples is Jeremiah 32, 40. You just write that down and look at it again later. But in Jeremiah 32, 40, that's a promise about the coming new covenant in Christ. And this is what he says about, this is what God says about believers in, that, in Jeremiah 32, 40. He promises, I will never turn away from doing good to them. I'll never turn away from doing good to them. Like, stated positively, I will always be doing good to them. Always. So when Paul says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, he is not saying, may this be true for you. He's saying, this is true for you. To put it in the language later in the letter of Philippians 2.13, God is always at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure and our good. And Paul's going to teach them and us that is the lens. That's the lens through which you are, as a Christian, to understand everything that comes into your life. Knowing that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life for all eternity, because of what Christ has done for us, we can now know that everything that comes in our way between now and then is designed to bring us safely to that day. And it's designed for our good. He's not... When something uncomfortable comes your way, that's not God stopping doing what is good. That's God, that's, that is his good for you. So if you, like Paul, wind up in prison and unjustly beaten with rods, may it never happen to you, that is not the Lord turning his posture of favor away for a second. That's not that. But he's doing something good in your life it may be a, 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 an understanding that surpasses understanding, but he's doing a good in your life, and he wants you to learn from it and, do, and, and, and know it. He doesn't just care about your eternal life. He cares about your daily bread. That's one comfort that Paul is going to emphasize in this letter. But another comfort that features prominently in this letter is simply this, deep friendship. Deep friendship with each other. That is a real comfort. The actual occasion, the actual literal occasion of this letter being written to them is that Paul's in prison 100 miles away in Ephesus. The Philippian church, being, being close friends with Paul that they were, they sent him gifts. And they sent gifts to Paul 100 miles away, which, by the way, is a feat. They're like, no, that's not too far. We're like, we got somebody. His name was Epaphroditus. They're like, hey, E, take these gifts a hundred miles to Ephesus to Paul. And he did. 
But once he got there, he got really sick. He almost died. Um, he eventually recovered. But they had heard, oh, man, Epaphroditus is sick. Well, he got better, and Paul is writing this letter back to them. A hundred-mile trip back, right? And he's not by Epaphroditus, but somebody else. And, and he, he wants to tell them, thank you for the gifts, and Epaphroditus is doing better. And thanks for sending him, right? That's basically what this letter is. But, I mean, it was a constant back and forth between Philippi and Ephesus, a hundred miles each time. That's deep friendship. And I think it, it, that is a comfort and a gift from God that we often overlook and don't think very deeply about. about that, and that is really deep and rich friendships that we have. Right? That encourage us and love us unconditionally. That would sacrifice for us. That we would sacrifice for them. And, and push us to love Christ more, close, uh, more fully and follow Him more closely. How do you find that kind of friendship? Because there are a lot of friendships that won't put you, push you toward Christ. Where do you find the ones that do? You find it here. You find it here when you jump in with both feet, being here on Sundays and Wednesdays, most definitely getting involved in a missional community group that you can, you can go ahead and sign up for now. Do, do that right away if you're a freshman or a first-year person. Like, you won't regret it for a second if you jump in right away. But Paul didn't just write his friends about all the comforts that the Lord had given him and them and in Christ and in their friendship. He's also writing, as any good friend would, to warn them about some dangers that he sees and they need to be aware of. So think with me quickly about the concerns, and then we'll wrap this thing up. You'll have a few minutes around your table. There are just two concerns that I want to highlight very quickly because we're going to spend the rest of the semester looking at it closely. The first concern he has is false teaching. And he'll mention that coming from more than one place, false teaching. Right here, later in chapter 1, he's going to talk about people who claim to be Christians, but really they're just self-promoters. And he warns them of that, and we need to be warned of that. I'll just say this, all that is shiny and very polished is not always good. Take that for what it's worth. The other false teaching that he'll say in chapter 3 is coming from a group we might call Judaizers, who were basically saying that Christians still had to keep the law of Moses to really be faithful, to really be accepted by God. And we need to be warned by that one too. Not that we're tempted to keep the law of Moses, but we uh, evangelicals can easily be tempted by people who have strong opinions, who say faithfulness has to look like this. Like if you're not doing it this way, if you're not having your quiet time this way, if you're not having it at this time, if you're not having it this often, if you're not doing this or that or this or that, they're not bad things, but it must look like this way. And if you're, you're going to be faithful, you've got to do it like this. That's another law. And we can be easily led astray in a lot of directions. And again, he's writing this to a church because it's a church together who can most easily fight those things. You'll be more likely to walk faithfully with Christ on a straight road when you're faithfully meeting with your church. But the other concern he has is potential disunity in the church. Disunity. He mentions two, two ladies in chapter 4 
I entreat Euodia, to chapter 4, verse 2, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche. Don't name your daughters that. Euodia. And Syntyche might have, somebody might shorten it to sin, and you don't want that. I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Come on, guys. You know, sort it out. I mean, they were at odds to each other, and, and that's, that's a bit, but that's not, a, that's not like a, the respectable sin. That's, he put it in this letter. And God said, this needs to be in the Bible for all time. Euodia and Syntyche's disagreement. In the Bible for all time. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Bitterness and anger is not okay. Disunity is not okay. Paul wants them to resolve their conflict, and he doesn't want the whole church to fall into that trap. He's going to talk about that a lot in chapter 2, having the, having the mind of Christ and considering others more significant than yourself. That's instructive, too, because there's always going to be the potential for somebody to say something or do something that offends you, hurts your feelings. But the admonition of this letter will be always to humble yourself, make it right, and forgive as you've been forgiven by Christ. Well, I'm really looking forward to working through this letter with you. I'm going to have a lot, it's going to, it's going to have a lot to teach and spur us on in Christ. I want to give you a couple of minutes around your tables. Maybe something, may, maybe you talk for a couple of minutes about something that, something that, um, that I said or something that came up, or you could always discuss three questions that we ask about any text is what did it teach me about God? What did it teach me about myself? What does it admonish me to do? You only have just a couple of minutes, so get to it.